and welcome to Undercover Dad, a podcast that looks at 1970s Detroit through the experiences of an undercover ATF agent. I'm your host, Joe Vince, and assistant editor with Officer Magazine. This podcast is a time capsule that provides a snapshot of what it was like to be in law enforcement and work undercover in a major U.S. city over 50 years ago. We'll see how far police work has come in that time, and if we're doing our job right, we hope you're able to take away a few lessons that you can apply to your work in the field today. This is also a passion project for me, because the undercover agent providing those first-hand experiences happens to be my dad, Joe Vince Jr., Back in the 1970s, he was an agent just beginning his nearly 30-year career with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They hadn't added explosives to the name yet, working first in Detroit and then in Flint, Michigan. During his time with the agency, he also worked in Omaha, Nebraska, Washington, D.C., Miami, and Chicago. He helped create ATF's Crime Gun Analysis Branch and became its first chief before retiring. Currently, he teaches at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and he is also the president of Crime Gun Solutions, a company he co-founded. With the introductions out of the way, let's jump right into things. Uh, Starting out, what was probably some of the best advice you got? Wow. That, that's a heavy question. You know, I'd have to say this, that one of the probably greatest mentors I ever had was your grandfather, because he had been a policeman for 28 years, World War II decorated veteran. And when I was a road deputy, I had the immense pleasure of riding with him at night because he worked at night shift for 19 years. He was running that. And, and, you know, to, to see him and the way he dealt with people, the way he was able to talk with people of all uh, ethnicities and races and social economic status. And what an amazing individual he was that way. Uh, And, to see that, you know, it wasn't always brute force that did anything. And he was never one that was a proponent for that. But it was the way of understanding people that you're around. And I think that helped me a lot. Along the way, you see how others purport themselves. And you pick out people or things that they do. And you you imitate them. Um, you want, you see that that works well, or that's something that you want to be, and you try to do that. The problem where some people go wrong is they see things on a television screen or a movie screen and want to be like that. And that's just not real. You know, there, there is no James Bond. There is, man, that, that may be nice for movies and, and, and escapism, but that's not real. And you don't want to be like that. The, the other thing, too, is that uh, sometimes you can't get in and, and, and be with those other people there. That's just not going to happen. Uh, and that's why you have to be somebody different and able to work this. 
you know, I, I always looked at, okay, what's, again, what's the Achilles heel of this guy I'm going after? In one case, uh, he and his wife, who were accomplices in this, the crimes that they committed, had a big interstate stolen property uh, ring going and uh, were big into narcotics trafficking of pharmaceuticals uh, because they would have, they would set up uh, burglaries of hospital pharmaceuticals. But uh, the one thing that was their Achilles heels was, uh, was sex and pornography. I mean, they were obsessed with it. So knowing that law enforcement for over a decade had not been able to penetrate this guy's operation made me think, well, how do we need to do this? And so the plan came up after talking with the the, 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 the officers I was working with at the time uh, that what we would do is try to sell this guy pornographic films. And I was able to go back to the, the sergeant at Detroit PD and see if we could get confiscated uh, films that they had to use undercover. And we did. And that worked. He bought into trusting us, bringing us in. I was able to buy guns. And I think we got over 25 search warrants uh, and seized over a million dollars worth of stolen goods. Well over, maybe even more than that. But uh, it was uh, enormous success because ahead of time, we figure out what makes this guy tick and, and how do we get into breaking. That's what Undercover does. That's exactly what it does. Matter of fact, most of the search warrants were the result of the fact that we were in his residence executing a search warrant, recovering a lot of stolen goods uh, and narcotics. And people were calling me up on the phone and I was able to answer the phone in, in my undercover persona and tell people, oh, everything's okay, bring it by. And we got all our uh, police cars out of the way, all our squad cars and the ATF vehicles. And they would pull up and you know, bring stolen stuff there or tell us, Hey, I just heard about, they just arrested so-and-so. And, and uh, what am I going to do? I got this warehouse full of stuff. Hey, stay by, we'll bring the truck over, you know, where you at? Okay. I'll be at this alley and we would get another search warrant. So again, undercover allows you to do that where some conventional uh, means doesn't necessarily uh, enable you to get the information you need to get those types of search warrants. So in that case, you pretty much, it, 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 it's like you had said earlier, anyone can make that arrest. This wasn't about the one arrest. You could get off that initial search warrant. It was uh, you know, almost having a, uh, uh, um, a, a, an order out business. You know, they're calling you up and say, hey, you got this, this and that. Can you get? You know, can uh, can you be by here to for for us to get arrested now? And and you know, just they're setting it up for you. Exactly. And when you think about it, Joe, uh, what you're trying to do is okay. I, this guy committed this crime, whether it's an armed robbery or whatever. And the objective of law enforcement is to okay, let's make sure a crime was de determined that a crime was committed. Let's get the evidence we need to arrest this guy. And you're only partway done there 
okay, well, where did the guy get the gun for this? Who are other people involved in this? Where is he selling his stolen goods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same way that, you know, DEA has been working forever on narcotics trafficking. Okay, we want to get up the ladder because we want to stop the distribution. And uh, that, that works at all types of crime. But many times, hey, we got this case done. Let's go on to the next case. And unfortunately for law enforcement today, there's just too many cases. The, the caseload for homicide detectives now is overwhelming. And when it used to be you'd have three or four, now they have 15 and 16. Th that's no way that's feasible. And so things have to change in that regard if we're gonna, we're gonna lower these violent crime rate we have today. You talked about how grandpa, um, it was his way with uh, people, uh, treating people like people that was one of his greatest strengths on the job um, and, and off the job too. Um, it, it, is there something either uh, you witnessed him as a, as um, in his role as a, as an officer that really, um, you know, stuck with you and is there, was there a moment where you caught yourself on the job and you were able to kind of think to yourself or say to yourself, wow, that's, I, I am, that is completely something um, dad would have done. I would, you know, that I can, I see myself here. Uh, I see him and myself and what I've just done. Well, I, I can say looking back on it now, yes. Uh, and the thing was that his, his whole philosophy was always be kind, always be nice. And when somebody's not nice, be nice again until it's not time to be nice. And you know, so you, you understand there's that point and people understand that. I went with on domestics with him and, and every officer that's ever been on domestic, you know, you, those are the worst. And where, you know, you have two people arguing and then you intervene and they're both on top of you. And I mean, it's just a horrible situation. Yet he would go there and I was with him many times when people would literally say we are so embarrassed that you had to come out here i feel so bad officer vince we won't you know i'm thinking how do you do that how do you get these two people who have literally gone to hating themselves now apologizing to you you know and and you know him saying now look at you don't want me to come back here again uh, and just uh, and again things were different back then i i think than they are today uh, and and that had a lot to do with things, you know. Back in that day, when I at, at me growing up, uh, if you were at a high school football game and and uh, you got into a fight, uh, well, the officers came over and and grabbed you by the back of your neck and threw you out of there, and you know you got a, a kick in the ass. Worse yet is that they would uh, take you to your your house and tell your father what you did. And that was the worst punishment. Nowadays, you know, officers' hands are really constrained uh, on, 
you know, allowing parents to do things. I, I try to do that as a, as a road deputy. Uh, and, you know, finding parents is, is a problem. Uh, at, the, at the university, uh, the students I work with, they have a project called Junior Mountaineers where we help underserved kids. And one of the things we do is try to get them to the university for a basketball game, or I just had them there where they interacted uh, with the men's basketball team. And they, they, these kids love that. Uh, and yet probably half the students um, didn't show up because uh, they couldn't find the parents to sign their waivers. So it's, it's much more difficult today than it was back then. I'm not saying that didn't occur back then, I'm just saying that the numbers weren't the same. Was there a point in your um, early on in your career where you where you saw those qualities? Was there like kind of a moment where it really crystallized for you that you could see um, where that those lessons from Grandpa were coming through? Oh, absolutely. And, and you, you know that when you do something wrong, or I mean, you do, you do something that you should have done better. You always learn more from your mistakes than you ever do from your successes. And that's how you talk about maturation. That's what it is. Uh, everybody's human and you're going to make mistakes. So you have to learn from your mistakes. And, and that's when I could look back. But I, I would have to say, too, that uh, what really cinched it for me was uh, when I was uh, wounded in line of duty, shot in the hand, and, a, and another agent was shot in the face. And back in that day, we didn't have uh, the support, uh, the psychologist and other medical support that officers have today. It was a lot different. And, you know, you're, you're, you're a tough guy. You're, you're, you're a cop. You've got to suck it up. Well, that's not the way the world works. And my dad knew that. And he was the one that through talking with me repeatedly got me through that because, uh, you know, of, of things that were said at the time when people were just angry and uh, uh, that is what shown me the maturity that he had on the job and taking that and, and, and getting me through this, that, that really, really had a lot to do with me going on. Uh, and, and continuing my career in law enforcement. Well, let's talk a, a, a little bit more about that, kind of uh, give some background on, on, on what happened on the situation and then how, how Grandpa helped you. Well, there was a, um, a, a young person who uh, was from a very wealthy family, extremely wealthy family at the time. And he was the black sheet of the family and they sort of kept him. And he had a, uh, a nine floor penthouse apartment or a very nice apartment in this ninth floor building outside of Detroit in a suburb. And the, the problem was the police, the local police were having a lot of problems with him, And he was uh, uh, providing drugs to, uh, young people, and he probably was in his late 20s, and yet I think the people that he dealt with were probably in late teens, early 20s, and 
so they were dealing with him and some of his narcotics trafficking when they found out that he had purchased a gun after being um, sent away to a, a, a mental institution after a drug arrest. So at the time, I was able to get a federal search warrant because, uh, you know, he purchased this gun and, and said yes or said no, I hadn't been to a mental institution. And uh, in getting that search warrant, we went up there uh, to execute it. And I had the local police officers there, ATF agents, and I had, a, a, I think, a couple DEA agents that were there as well. And when we knocked on the door uh, and the information that we had from the informant that there were three people in, in this apartment, uh, we had to break the door in. And as we, we ran in, uh, the way the apartment was, you ran through a, a kitchen type area. There was going to the, the sitting area and the bedroom was to the left, but directly uh, going in myself and other agent went that way. And there was a, a, a guy right there in the living area uh, and uh, the agent uh, took him in custody. I went to the bedroom uh, and I could hear somebody in there and, and I announced again who we were, uh, we're federal agents, we're police come out with your hands up. And as I went around the corner, um, he stepped from the bedroom and opened fire, which raised me and then uh, went through um, a door jam at the front door where there was another ATF agent. And he was pulling a Southfield police officer out of the way. And it was a 357 Magnum and it went through the door jam and struck him in the face. Now he recovered, but of course, there was a lot of, of difficulties in that recovery. Um, but, you know, after that, just a, a lot of people um, were upset that what I did is I, I fired, um, I returned fire. Uh, even though I was hit, I really, the adrenaline was, was, was moving. It wasn't, you know, uh, a hit that was hit to my hand. And I, I didn't probably even realize that time, but I returned fire and went crouched down to, to fire again and he gave himself up. And when he did, I dragged him out and I put him on the ground and put a chair over him because I thought there was another person there. I cleared that room and then came back and cuffed him. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of people were saying, geez, how, how did he live with this? Well, you don't do that. And I, I think a lot of that was said, I don't think other agents would have done that or anything, but it was just out of, how terrible this was we have this agent who's in the hospital and uh, it was a very difficult time and you know I'm, I'm very young at the time I certainly haven't experienced anything like this and uh, it was the guidance that he gave me on a continuous basis that helped and and helped me really improve in my courtroom testimony in this case when you say how could they live with this what i i what exactly was uh, as far as live with what I'm, I'm not quite following. Well, I, like I said, I hadn't experienced anything like this and to, to understand what went on and to understand um, that, you know, it was okay that, when you fired, you, you didn't hit him and you made the right rest after that. Uh, Cause you sort of blame yourself 
for things that went on. And, and uh, that wasn't the case. We had a, an excellent uh, raid plan. Uh, it, it uh, you know, thought we had everything covered. We had executed a lot of search warrants like this, especially in Detroit. There was a, a, a lot of narcotics warrants at the time. There was a program called Odale Office of, um, uh, it was a DEA local initiative, which ATF participated in. So uh, we had done a lot and, and hadn't experienced this. And of course, uh, you know, the, because of the, the wealth of the individual is a lot of uh, attorney money there. So uh, I spent uh, 12 hours on the stand in the preliminary hearing testifying, uh, things along that line, which, which, which were very new to me at that, that point in my career. So it was really you questioning yourself uh, because another uh another agent had been wounded um you yourself was wounded just that it, it looking kind of for what it was that you did wrong or or was that what was going through your head exactly you you know this was my search warrant and what could i have done to prevented this and uh you know all through my life a lot of times I felt like, you know, I had to be there for people. I had to help things. I had to correct them. And, and I did a lot of those a lot of times. But there's certain things that are not in your control. And you have to, you understand that as you grow older and, and you see different things happening, that there's just things you can't control. No matter uh, what you try to do, I, I couldn't control the events that happened there. I couldn't have changed what happened there. And it was that what... Uh... Uh, grandpa was was helping for you was to give you that perspective not just as a parent but uh, as as someone in law enforcement no exactly and that's what i needed uh it, you know it's one thing to hear something from your dad but to hear in in putting it in that perspective of okay but this is the way it is. And this is what you have to understand about that. Th th that's what you needed to hear. And I'm sure what he was doing is what medical professionals do now for law enforcement officers that are involved in such like, like situations. That's it for this episode of Officer Magazine's Undercover Dad podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find Undercover Dad at Podbean, Apple, and Spotify. And while you're doing that, also check out Officer Magazine's new Officer Roll Call podcast. Stay safe and see you next time.